to you by Narrate West. I'm Ada Yi. And I'm David Lipton. Today, our guest is Matthew Daba, Associate Professor of Neuroscience at Thomas Jefferson University. In this episode, we will talk about laser scanning photostimulation and cortical development, Fs, Efrens, and synapse formation, and what to love in both Philly and the Bay Area. All this and more coming up. All right, we're here with Matthew Dalva, Associate Professor of Neuroscience at Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Dalva. Thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity to share our, my thoughts with the Stanford community. All right, so usually we like to start with a little bit about your background. Um, so where did you grow up, and uh, what were you interested in? Uh, were you interested in science as a kid? Yeah, I actually grew up in California, so... Oh. Uh, my family, um, I grew up in Marin County. Huh. And cool. um, yeah, so I mean, I think California is a great place. Um, I actually didn't grow up with a, you know, particularly scientific background. Uh, both my parents are artists. Oh, wow. And, wow. Um, so my mother's like, she does um, sculpture of clay sculpture. And um, my father's actually a filmmaker. So I mean, I think there's some sort of technical areas there, but it, I really didn't come from sort of a hard science background. Uh-huh. Of course, as a kid, I always liked, you know, exploring the outdoors and learning about how things work. Um, but it wasn't really till I came to college and started kind of exploring different classes that I really, you know, found a passion for science. And um, so... Was there a particular class or something that, I mean... That, that do you remember a moment when you thought that this was it, or did you just kind of gradually think, ah, oh, this is kind of cool? I mean, I think that uh, I started getting interested in it from the, I started getting interested in neuroscience specifically from the perspective of, you know, how do we think about problems? So in college, I was a philosophy and psychology major, and those are very sort of, you know, fuzzy from a biologic perspective, but they are really about how people think and how the world right. interacts with people. Right. You know, on the one hand, yeah. philosophy is trying to figure out, well, how does, how do we get these ideas and where do ideas come from? Mm-hmm. And I mean, psychology is right, trying to figure out how people work. So, I mean, I, I, as I took classes, I tended to gravitate to ones that had more of a biologic focus in psychology. Mm-hmm. And then actually, um, it wasn't until my junior year, but junior year, I took a, a class actually in the med school and um, it's the intro neuro course for med students, um, and I just loved it. I mean, I, I really liked um, all sort of, I mean, I, I really like the sort of more mechanistic approach to understanding the brain uh-huh. and the hope that eventually we'd get to understanding how these more, um, you know, significant questions maybe of how the, how we think work. Yeah. I mean, it's always interesting to me because, you know, if you think about, like, the ancients or something, natural philosophy was their science. That was the way they interrogated the world. And things have bifurcated a little bit, but maybe they're coming together, too, with all these people Mm -hmm. interested in neuroscience. Yeah, I mean, I think in the last 20 years, we've made a lot of progress sort of bringing back toward, you know, understanding how circuits in the brain can really give behavior. And Mm -hmm. we're starting to understand, you know, pretty complicated problems from that perspective. And it always is fun to hear uh, how... Uh, scientists have uh, gotten their start in these yeah. big meta philosophical <laughs> yeah. questions and then yeah. dive and drilled in. down. Yeah. It's just cool to hear that uh, yeah. big picture mindset. Um, so now getting on, getting on to uh, discussing some actual science, uh, you started off working in the laboratory of Larry Katz, studying how synaptic connectivity, 
and visual cortex develops and matures throughout development. And throughout career, your career, most of your work has been on trying to understand the synapse. So what first got you interested in this problem of really focusing on the synapse? Well, I mean, I think it seems like it's the organizational unit of the brain. Um, right. I mean, I think if you want to understand how the brain works, you need to understand how those circuits form and how, how synapses function. And I've always been, you know, I would say also interested in how the brain grows and develops. And I think a, a key question yeah. in that sort of originally is how do you connect one part of the brain to the other? So how do axons get from one place to the other? And right. when I was sort of starting out uh, in science, I mean, we already knew a lot about how axons grew and how they elaborated. And we thought, you know, activity was really important in those events. And people have since found a lot of molecular mechanisms that drive those things. But there really was very little understood about how the contacts themselves were made. And so to me, it seemed like, at least when I was starting, an area where there was much less known, but it was obviously going to be super important. So yeah. once axons get to the right place, what do they do next? Mm-hmm. So prior yeah. to, to actually, so Larry Katz was your graduate advisor. So prior to that, you were actually starting work with that activity-dependent stance, right? Did you do some yeah, experiments? So, I mean, I would say the other thing that really sparked my passion for science was as an undergrad, I, I worked with Carla Schatz when yeah. she was first here and um, at Stanford or first there at Stanford. Yeah. And um, so she... You know, I mean, Carla's fantastic, and working in her lab was just this a very wonderful experience. I actually worked closely with uh, this um, guy who was a graduate student at the time. His name is Anurban Ghosh, who's ah, very, yeah. you know, yeah. very successful himself. And yeah. so it was just a really exciting time to be in her lab. There was a lot of uh, – it was around the time when her lab was doing these very cool experiments where they're making in utero manipulations of animals. and. Mm-hmm modulating activity in in utero and so you we it was just very uh, you know felt like we were really exploring the unknown mm-hmm. and so i think that yeah. certainly started my passion for science and i mean i've really been fortunate throughout my career to work for just amazing people and uh i think that that's um made it a lot more fun for me and i hope you know good for them too so. <laughs> it's that's funny you're the second person we've talked we've interviewed this week that was inspired by carla Shet. so yeah um, she's had a big yeah she's had a big influence <laughs> yeah so yeah you were working again on this on this uh, activity dependent question i think you like actually did some ttx injections into the yeah, the yeah. so the first experiments anatomy. i did in carla's lab we actually did in utero implantation of money pumps that infused tetrodotoxin into the uh, LGN region of, you know, fetal cats mm-hmm. and looked at how that changed um, the pattern of, I mean, it, it actually had more modest change than we were expecting. And I think sort of this has been borne out by future work where, you know, axon arbors are very sensitive to neuronal activity changes, but mm-hmm. dendritic arbors are much less sensitive. Mm-hmm. And you do see changes in like spine number and spine morphology with changes in activity, but the dendritic arbor pattern themselves wasn't much affected by blocking activity, even though the, the axonal arbor was. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that, you know, you have different effects, but pre on the presynaptic side and postsynaptic side. Mm. Did you guys ever yeah. work out what maybe the difference was there? Um, I mean, I think that that's just the fundamental different problem. And I mean, uh-huh. maybe it, you want to think about it more in terms of, I mean, I think people like Carl Swoboda and others are starting to think about this problem, right? So some recent work suggests that, um, 
you know, if you look at the density of axons and you look at the density of synapses, mm-hmm. the density of axons doesn't predict the density of synapses well. Mm-hmm. So I think it suggests that the postsynaptic cell is playing a really important role in helping to specify sort of where the contacts are, what contacts are made. And, and that really plays into sort of the kind of work that we're doing now where we're trying to look at how synapses are formed through these transsynaptic interactions between proteins that are you know, one protein pre and one protein postsynaptically. Yeah. And I think the question is who drives that? One question is who drives that synaptogenesis? Mm-hmm. Or if someone That's did. fascinating. Right. I, we'll definitely get to that. Yeah, yeah. we'll get to that later. All right. um, but back to Larry Katz yeah. <laughs> and your work there. Um, and yeah, so, so Larry was, uh, you know, unfortunately Larry passed away. And, uh-huh. yeah. um, but he was a really fantastic, fantastic mentor. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really fortunate I got to work uh, one-on-one with him a lot early mm-hmm. on in my graduate career. Mm-hmm. And um, Ed Calloway and he had done the first experiments to develop this technique called photostimulation right. and had used a flash lamp, a very bright lamp that they could flash briefly. But Larry and I then took that work and developed it into something that I think where we could actually map large numbers of connections quickly using a laser-based system. Mm-hmm. So we developed, or I developed a scanning approach so we could scan a brain slice while we're recording from a cell and look at the where the inputs, where the cells that were connected to that cell were located within the slice. So it was sort of an early precursor to kind of some of the things that people are doing with optogenetics now. And And what would be the effect of that stimulation, of that scanning stimulation? Mm -hmm. So one minus and limitation of this technique, unlike the optogenetic tools where you can really stimulate rapidly and it's it can be quite similar to physiologic stimulation. Yeah. With photostimulation, uh, because of the way it worked, you can't you couldn't actually stimulate very rapidly. So it was good for scanning the pattern of connections, but it wasn't particularly good for modulating the strength or or uh, function of the network. And so we could stimulate sort of once every few seconds. And the reason for the slowness of the stimulation uh, seemed to actually be t- due to the fact that well, so you use a diffusible caged compound and uh-huh. we actually were able to when you uncage it you depleted so much of that uh, compound that it took a while for it to fuse back or at least that's just what we always thought mm-hmm. so hmm. it was it was a good way to sort of look at who was connected to who mm-hmm. but i think really it wasn't until we you know the optogenetic tools were developed that we really could then try to you know use those optical tools to stimulate although a guy named Carl Candler, who was in Larry's lab later, mm-hmm. used the photostimulation to do LTD because uh, you could stimulate slowly enough mm-hmm. that you could generate LTD. So it seemed like the major advantage of that technology was more on the mapping end of things, mm-hmm. the, the readout rather than the stimulation, but maybe combining those more modern technologies we see like optogenetics with this would have. Right. I mean, the cool thing about it is it lets you really select a particular uh, neurotransmitter. So. You know, you could do cage GABA, you could cage mm-hmm. glutamate, you could potentially cage NMDA, although uh, we, we didn't do that much. So you could you could do more um, pharmacology with it, I think. Uh, that was cool. And we, we talked about all kinds of cool things like pattern stimulation and being able to stimulate rapidly. And people have done those sort of things in the years that have intervened. So mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm sure many people have, but... Uh, a guy named Sam Wong, who's at Princeton, he's done a lot of neat experiments where he has he can do pattern stimulation 
where you can stimulate multiple sites at the same time and look at how circuit, you know, how information is integrated. And Ed Calloway, who is one of the other people who developed the technique, he he's done more pattern stimulation with it. So I think mm-hmm. you can, when you learn how to move the laser around better and position it um, quickly, you can do some neat experiments. And so you looked at the presynaptic inputs to these individual um, cortical neurons mm-hmm. through development. And can you explain how this uncaging of glutamate allows you to look at the presynaptic inputs to a cell and what you found? Sure. Sure. So the way it works is that you record from a one neuron in a brain slice with yeah. a patch line. And then you have your brain slice on a glass dish, and you stimulate with a laser light that you're shining into the slice. Mm-hmm. And in the bath, you have a caged compound that's inactive until the cage is broken by a particular wavelength light. Okay. And so what happens is that you shine the laser at different locations around the slice, and if you happen to shine it in a location where a cell is that connects to your recorded neuron, when you unclage glutamate, um, if, if you have conditions right, that'll be enough to, to cause that cell to fire an action potential. And then okay. the action potential will propagate down to your recorded cell, and you'll be able to see that as a synaptic input. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can differentiate sort of long-range synaptic inputs from local ones or local local effects of the neuron you're recording from because um, you can see if when you depolarize locally, you can actually or flash locally, you can see a, a current uh, in the cell you okay. know, that's a slow, long-lasting current. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. So I guess when I've okay. seen this data, you actually come out with these big grids where you have one cell that you've been simulating, you've tested like every single cell around it, mm-hmm. and some of them have responses, some they don't. Yeah. And you couldn't, I mean, I think the problem is that, so it turns out that cortex is really sparsely interconnected. I see. Yeah. So very few cells are connected together, even when they're really, really even cl- very close together, there's few cells that are connected mm-hmm. together. So you have a pretty low chance of recording from a cell that's actually connected to your cell, mm-hmm. even if you're doing recordings that are very close together. But mm-hmm. as you move further and further away, um, you have less and less a chance. And, and I think the other thing is, and if you think about this, the area that you're uncaging is actually probably stimulating maybe a hundred cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're really, and you only see sort of these, if you've seen the maps, you only see occasional places where you have inputs. Mm-hmm. So it kind of tells you that there's just very few contacts between particular cells mm-hmm. in the brain, especially as you move further away. Mm-hmm. And, right. and so, yeah, so with the advantage of being able to record these long-range uh, connections, as you said, that otherwise would have been hard with this, without this technology. You made the discovery that, so across development, it seems that, you know, uh, that there's, a, there's a peak in, like, a high density of, uh, of local connections, and then that declines. And mm-hmm. then later on, but the, the peak for long-range connections is actually shifted later. Is that, is that mm-hmm. correct? And so, so can you explain that finding, how it was important, so, and why? So, you know, in Larry's lab at the time, um, and Larry Larry had been really interested in how these long-range horizontal connections form mm-hmm. in the upper layers of cortex. Mm-hmm. And um, those the formation of those connections, uh, the ref- their refinement is activity-dependent, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. link regions of cortex with similar orientation preference. Mm-hmm. So there are a way in which the idea is that those connections are a way in which you can sort of have line constancy. So you can mm-hmm. see a longer line than the length of your receptive field. Sort of, that's one idea. They may have other functions. But, um, so we were really interested in how do those long-range connections form, and we knew that they should go through a period of sort of having too many connections, or at least from looking at their axons, their axons uh, refine as they mature. Mm-hmm. And so a central question was sort of do they sample their environment 
um, and then figure out where the right place to connect to is, or do they grow precisely to the right location? And so I think what our data suggests is that this period of exuberance corresponds with them sampling their environment, and then they refine to the mature pattern. And so you see fewer connections later after this exuberant period. Um, but I think it's important to note that they sort of have, they do have some pattern even early on. So there are many connections that are in the right place. There are just lots of extra ones too. And so I think, I think what it was really a, what was surprising about it was, um, first of all, how early the first connections were seen, um, and secondly, uh, how much exuberance we had. And and in a later in a paper I published much later, we actually differentiated between excitatory and inhibitory development. And it turns out that um, you actually get exuberance of both excitatory and inhibitory connections, but that the inhibitory ones refine to their adult pattern first, and then the excitatory ones follow later. And so you could imagine the neat model that actually the refinement of the inhibitory connections then can help drive the excitatory connection refinement. How do the inhibitory connections refine uh, initially? What mechanisms are in place there? I mean, I think... I think that's a good question, but but I think thinking about that is it might have something to do with the fact that maybe early on in development, inhibitory connections are actually can drive cells to spike, right? So you have this uh, excitatory activity of inhibitory connections, and it, at least in the few experiments that we did, it seemed like this the refinement occurred around when that switched. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Huh, interesting. Yeah, that goes that goes I guess along with there's a large body of work of people who believe that. You know, not just with the normal development, but even with uh, experience-dependent development, inhibition often drives excitation first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, right. I mean, Takao Hanch and right. many others have done much more about that than I have. So I'm just following on their coat field. All right. All right. So uh, moving on for your postdoctoral work, you then went on to work in the lab of Michael Greenberg at Harvard, where you studied efferins and F receptors in synapse development. Uh, you and Mike published two papers, the first one showing that efferin-B stimulation leads to enhanced interaction of FB receptors and NMDA receptors, and then you uh, subsequently showed that efferin-induced FB activation leads to NMDA phosphorylation and increased calcium influx. So backing up, first, what was known at the time about uh, cell adhesion molecules that could promote synapse formation, uh, and why did you focus on the efferin and F-class receptors? Mm-hmm. So at the time I started my postdoc in the Mike, Mike's lab, there was actually no, nothing known about it. So it was before the publication of the first study um, by Peter Schifferle and um, others of the Nurex and Neuroligans. Yeah. Um, and so, but there was a great deal of interest in trying to find molecules that might drive synapse formation because it was after the cloning and discovery of the musk molecule, which is the receptor tyrosine kinase, which was initially thought to drive synapse development at the neuromuscular junction and plays a role in that, but has a more complicated function. And so, um, you know, as a graduate student, we had done a lot of mapping of connections, Mm -hmm. but I really wanted to know, I really, you know, I had this idea that you you wanted to be able to show it and then you wanted to be able to move it and you wanted to be able to block it. And if you're talking about synaptic connections, you needed to be able to do that by understanding the molecules that drove their formation. And so I went to Mike and I said, can, do you think we can find molecules that are important for synapse formation? And he thought that was a cool idea. Um, and so we, we started off trying to clone 
see if we could just that back in those days you could still clone things there wasn't a genome sequence yeah. <laughs> and it was still cloning by homology so yeah we you know made pc degenerate pcr primers and we tried to clone uh the the cns musk mm-hmm. okay. and um, I'm not sure if we failed because it doesn't exist or because I wasn't a very good molecular biologist when <laughs> this, I started. This is your yeah. first, first time doing molecular <laughs> biology yeah. in yeah. that lab. <laughs> it wasn't a pretty site, let me say. Um, but after a while, we, we sort of started thinking about other things. And in Mike's lab, there was already some work going on about the FA molecules. And so um, we... we um, I sort of just tried this experiment one day thinking that, well, you know, when you treat cells with agarin, you get aggregation of the muscle-specific kinase, and you get receptors that co-localize with it. You get acetylcholine receptors. So we, we just tried treating neurons with efferin, and we saw that it aggregated the F receptor, and lo and behold, the NMDR receptor co-localized. And so that was a great, that was a really exciting day. That must have been really confidence boosting. Like, I have this idea. Was that <laughs> Let the me first... just try it out, and it works. Was that the first receptor you stained for? Did you just get lucky? Well, we did, the other, we did the other Fs just because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we didn't know if it was going to be an FA or FB. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, that, that's how we started doing it. So everything sort of grew from that, and, you know, we built up the story that uh, is in that first paper out of that initial observation. And so at the time, I mean, I think we we were really focused on the postsynaptic organization, and and we didn't really think of this transsynaptic idea, although it was obvious that the efferent should be presynaptic to us from how we were doing the experiment. And, um, you know, I think we were one of the first papers uh, published on, you know, sort of one of these CNS synapse organizing molecules. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah there's very little known about it. So it was an exciting time to be in the field. <laughs> and um, more generally, I, from my understanding, it was thought that during development there were these genetic intrinsic mechanisms of mm-hmm. synapse assembly. And mm-hmm. then later, um, you know, activity played a role in, in pruning um, mm-hmm. these uh, ex- sure. initial exuberant synapses. And so... Um, the fact that you had this uh, efferin-FB interaction that interacted with NMDA receptors and led in calcium and then could modulate sure. gene expression, like, how did that make you think about a potential link between these two? Um, these? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, from my training in Larry and Carla's lab, and, I mean, I think I was always trying to think about how, how would you pass from an activity-independent system to an activity-dependent one? Yeah. And I mean, it, I think it was already known at the time, or people certainly appreciated that, you know, you needed to get NMDA receptors to synaptic sites. And once you got NMDA receptors there, those sites should be able to undergo activity-dependent plasticity. And so, I mean, we, as soon as we saw that interaction, we were very excited about it and felt like it could speak to this question of, you know, how do you uh, transition from an activity-independent process like axon guidance to an activity-dependent process like synapse elaboration or synaptic pruning or uh, synaptic specification. So, I mean, I think it's a great idea, but we're we're only, I think, now having developed the tools to really begin to maybe test that if that's really what the FNMDR receptor direction is doing. Um, but, but I think it's a neat idea, right? And it, 
it speaks to this question of, you know, maybe the endpoint of axon guidance shouldn't be thought, it can be thought of as synapse formation, right? So you grow an axon out, get to the right place, and then it begins to elaborate synaptic connection. Yeah. And if, if that axon is in the right place, uh, which means, you know, it's been guided there by different guidance keys, including, let's say, the Fs and Ferens. So if you have that, if you establish a contact between the axon and the dendrite, or you have the right F and efferin, you can recruit the NMDA receptor, that's then, then going to give that synaptic contact an advantage relative to its neighbors. And maybe you'll maintain that contact uh-huh. where you have the NMDA receptors there as mm-hmm. over some others. Gotcha. And that could, um, uh, that model, I think, drives well with the fact that there are so many cell adhesion molecules that are capable of promoting synaptogenesis. And so you give mm-hmm. a slight selective advantage by having one of these interaction pairs between two neurons, but um, that, that there's an additive or subtractive mm-hmm. role. Sure. But I think one of the important questions in the field right now is really why, you know, so do synap- all these different synaptic adhesion molecules function together, like you're saying, in an additive way? Right. Or might they specify distinct populations of synaptic connections? Or might they function at different times during synaptogenesis? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that the field... You know, many fields are like this, but one of the things about what we found with these uh, inter- these synapse organizing molecules, we we call them synapse organized molecules because in certain assays they lead to more or less synapses, right, when you manipulate them. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think those are kind of endpoint measures. Yeah. So we're not really looking at when they act. Mm-hmm. So I think another another thing may be that different huh. synapse organizing molecules may act at different points in the process of generating a synapse. So, you, yeah. you know, you, if you think about the cell biology, you first have to make a contact between the axon and the dendrite or the dendrite and the axon. Then you have to decide if you're going to keep the contact. Then you have to recruit the right proteins there. Right. And then you have to maintain it in the mature brain. I mean, there's probably more steps, but those are... So I think there's probably going to be different groups of organizing molecules that play roles at different steps. And you can imagine if you got rid of yeah. a molecule that played in any one of those locations, you might see fewer synapses. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, mm-hmm. just to clarify, so when you say these endpoint measures, so are you, a way to look at more of the process across development of a synapse as opposed to the final product, does that imply that you know less overexpression in culture studies and more looking at endogenous function and more in vivo setting? Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you experimentally? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think um, although I started out working in labs that were nearly entirely in vivo, um, <laughs> I think. What I found remarkable is actually, in, in my experience, you know, what you learn in vitro, maybe it's not exactly the same as you see in vivo, but I really think in general it's, it's, it's translatable. Mm-hmm. And I think in general we can learn a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think in vivo would be great, but I actually think what we need to do is, you know, watch the process of synapse development more mm-hmm. carefully and ask sort of if we disrupt function of a, of a particular molecule, when does the process break down? So, yeah, time-lapse imaging or, I mean, you could also just look at different time points. Um, and I think, I mean, certainly, you know, I think you have to do all the things that you mentioned. Um, but I think right now one limitation in the field is we don't really know when during synapse development or synapse maturation do these different molecules function. So, for instance, the Fs, you know, uh, one of the things that we found was that they drive filopodium motility, right? And um, that seems like kind of an early step in synapse formation. And, um, you know, you said you wanted a preview of what I'm going to talk about. So one of the things I'm going to talk about is, you know, 
the experiments that we've done now that really make us think that the apps really are important for that earliest stage of synapse initiation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that may be different from other molecules that are going to be important, you know, for maintaining the contact or deciding whether or not to keep it. So I mm -hmm. think I think those are all really important steps. But, you know, mm -hmm. like many times in science, as we learn more about it, we kind of learn that it's more complicated than we thought initially. Mm -hmm. And so following that um, line of thought about there being the sequential uh, process of synapse formation, and that syn syn different cell adhesion molecules could be involved in different steps. <laughs> Do you think that if you're um, deficient in the set of molecules in a first step, like these F receptors, that it's possible for um, these other cell adhesion molecules to uh, overcome this initial uh, mm -hmm. defect, or is um, are, are there, this is a really a hierarchy of synapse formation? Well, I mean, I think you know. We've really learned, I think, in the last few years how redundant biology is. And right. um, certainly if you look at the F, uh, you know, there's uh, F triple knockout mice, so the three main F receptors that are expressed in brain, well, they they still have 60% of the normal number of excitatory synapses. Yeah. So, I mean, either they're not required for that other 60% at all or there can be compensation. And I think it's hard to figure out which one of those two things that are you know, as going on. And I think some of the other factors, like the Norexa neuroligan family, you know, they seem to have more modest effects on synapse number when you get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So maybe there, maybe that suggests that there's going to be even more compensatory mechanisms that can, you know, compensate for their loss. Yeah. So I, I think it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the whole animal knockout is can be maybe is more complicated to interpret sometimes than we think mm -hmm. and yeah. you know single cell manipulation or rnai or crispr that you could do on a, on a single cell level those may be more informative for the real sort of essential function of molecules mm -hmm. yeah but i so think it's it's really yeah i mean i think it's really uh cool to um have, have focused on a set of cell adhesion molecules that seem to be involved so early uh in the process mm -hmm. of synapse formation in terms of Mm -hmm. Philopodium motility. Yeah, which, uh, yeah. So Ada you you brought it up more. already. So you gave us our segue. But um, we wanted. So really. Uh, so first you moved to UPenn. You started your own lab at UPenn, and now you're at uh, Thomas Jefferson University. Just moved there. Um, and during this time, you really, really just followed up on a lot of this Efrin uh, work from your postdoc. Um, and as you mentioned, you had this paper looking at excitatory Philopodia and what happens to them in the F receptor. Um, knockouts, I believe. Um, can you maybe just tell us a little more about what these, for those who don't know, what these philopodia are um, mm -hmm. and, and what you found in the context of efferens? Sure. So, you know, I mean, since for many, many years, I mean, since like Steve Smith first or, and others first started filling neurons with GFP, I think people have been really surprised at how dynamic uh, they are, right? So, Dendrites are pretty stable, but on dendrites, you have a lot of protrusions that move around. So you have spines that can move. But early in development, you actually have these things that people call philopodia, which are more stick-like structures. They tend to be actin-rich, and they're very dynamic. So they can move in and out, and they can also move laterally, although maybe they do that less in the brain. And so, I mean, since the first observation of these structures, people have really postulated them as being important for generating synaptic contacts. And so they look a lot, they kind of look like a spine, except they don't have a spine head on them. So one idea is, well, maybe they're the precursor to spines. But, if, you know, I think that's still under debate. Um, but if nothing else, it seems like a great way to explore your local environment. So if a dendrite grows up, how do you sample all the axons that are going by? And by extending these processes, you can do that. And, and that seems to be 
probably the function of Philopodia. And so what, what we found is that um, early on in development, you have a lot of this Philopodia motility. And if you look in the F triple knockout mice, there's much less dynamics of Philopodia. So it seems like Fs are really important for regulating how these Philopodia move. And, you know, could that be why there are fewer synapses? Well, we, we wanted to know. And what the paper actually shows is that it's, it's more complicated than that. So the Fs are important both for moving the Philopodia, but if you make the Philopodia move in an F-independent way, that doesn't give you synapses back. So you actually need that F effort interaction and the movement to get a synapse to form. And I think this is one of the sort of first examples of really showing that Philopodia themselves were maybe the precursor to or required for synapse formation. Can you bring the efferents back and get those spines back? Because in the end, how do you really separate these Philopodia from the mature spine stabilization? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's been really a question. And it's been, you know, so if you look by EM, some Philopodia, you can see they have some what look like immature synaptic specializations on them. Mm -hmm. But many of them are very transient. So you don't really think that they're going to have these specializations. And so we're... We've been actually looking using some super resolution technology, STED microscopy, to try to look at within these philopodia, what do these synaptic organizing molecules look like? And um, so that's another thing I'm going to talk about. And I think um, that looks very interesting and tells us more about sort of, I actually much earlier than I would have expected, you start to see synaptic organizing molecules in these philopodia. And in fact, you start seeing presynaptic specializations that are adjacent to those philopodia. Mm -hmm. So, so, and do you see um, that? I know that uh, a lot of uh, cell adhesion molecules are in this perisynaptic zone around mm -hmm. um, the actual synaptic cleft. Do you see in the philopodia like that that these molecules are clustered toward the tip and are in in place to? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we haven't looked at a whole bunch of different ones just because it's early days yet but yeah. it does look like they're in the tip i think i think we have to be careful even with super resolution sort of how much we can resolve yeah. so um uh i'm not sure if we can distinguish between like uh, peri tip and the center of the tip but they're okay. definitely kind of in the tip and uh okay. you know you do see some things that look kind of cool like sometimes you'll see uh what looks like in one philopodia you'll have uh two f puncta, let's say, and in the middle of those two will be Ephraim puncta. So you do see yeah. sort of things that look pretty interesting. Huh. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Um, so I feel like you've already kind of given us a, a bit of a preview of your talk. I don't know if you want to summarize anything else you think you're going to be adding. So, so the last thing I, I would say is that, you know, I mean, people are really interested in the NMDA receptor, and I think one of the things that's been really gratifying to me as a scientist is that Mm -hmm. It turns out that other people have been able to see that the F and the NMD receptor actually interact, mm -hmm. and it looks like that interaction might be important, um, mm -hmm. not just in the developing brain, but also in the mature brain. Ah. And so um, there have been another number of papers published from other groups that, that show mm -hmm. that the F and NMD receptor interaction can be modulated in Alzheimer's disease, and I think also in these... Um, and then there's also work from groups that have looked at these... Um, disorders where people ge generate autoantibodies to the NMDA receptor. It turns out those autoantibodies disrupt the F-NMDA receptor interaction. And so um, the last part of my story is going to be about identifying the interaction domain on the F-receptor that mediates its ability to bind the NMDA receptor. 
Right, because you've shown that they're bound through IPs. But we've never been able to identify the interaction. And um, so it turns out to be a very novel mechanism that's quite surprising. And so... um, we're yeah, yeah. on the end of our cool. yeah. <laughs> Leave that in suspense. So we cool. Um, so we usually end uh, our interviews with a couple of what we call rapid fire right. questions. We just ask you a few brief, hopefully easy questions, and you can just answer with whatever is on the top of your mind. All right. Um, so the first question we always like to ask is if you could speak to yourself, and we mean you specifically, Matthew Delva, uh, as a grad student, what advice would you give to yourself, Matthew? Um, well. I guess I would, uh, I would say, I mean, follow your heart and your passions and you're not going to go wrong. And I think, um, you know, work, try to work for good people and, you know, try to, you know, think carefully about the problems that you're studying and take good notes. (laughs) (laughs) Always good advice. Yeah. Good advice. So, um, I don't know if I mentioned as a, a Greenberg alum myself, uh, I was a, uh-huh. a research assistant in a Greenberg lab. Um, yeah. I was wondering if you have a favorite Mike story or favorite story from the uh. lab. <laughs> well, uh, do I have a favorite Mike story that I can tell in a, in a widely accessible way? <laughs> yeah. so, so one of the things that I thought uh, was, was neat about Mike is when I was in Mike's lab, Azad Bonnie was a postdoc there and he uh, had been working for Mike for many years. And so Azad, Mike's lab has big group meetings every week, and you, everyone presents their work. And Azad would always begin his um, his talk with a graph of the number of people in Mike's lab. <laughs> and this was a very funny graph because, it, you know, Azad had been in Mike's lab since there were just a few people in Mike's lab. <laughs> And by the time I was in lab, there were like maybe 20, 25 people. Uh-huh. And it was kind of in this exponential phase of growth. <laughs> so Azad just projected out, you know, by 2020, everyone in the United States is going to be working in Mike's lab. We'll and Mike didn't really, really like this very much. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see but it was very funny. <laughs> Always good to have fun uh, lab meetings. Um, all right. And then the last question. So we were going to ask, uh, what was your favorite, or what is your favorite thing to do in Philly as you've been there for a while? But uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I feel like because you're a Bay Area alum, maybe you can give us your favorite thing to do in each of these cities. Uh, <laughs> Compare and contrast. Compare and contrast. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. um, I mean, so Philly is a great town, actually. I mean, I think surprisingly they have some similarities in terms of they're both really great food cities Mm -hmm. so uh philly has some really fantastic (laughs) restaurants and um i think it's also one thing it has over san francisco is it's easy to be a scientist here (laughs) it's it's not you you really uh you know i think it's a great place to live in terms of that there's good schools and stuff like that so what do 